Hello there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the storytelling family, where, in the heat of the summer, we unveil tales rated R to XXX, live on stage, stripped of notes and inhibitions. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Now dig into rock and a hard place stories. Our totally smashing season debut held on June 27, 2016 at the Adults Only Visual Arts Collective. This is the featured act with the stone cold rock stars Danielle Cheeto, Mike Sharp, and Amber Saylor. Because real life is always served on the rocks. It's late night stories, straight up. Let's start off with our first featured storyteller this evening. Her name is Danielle Cheadle. Danielle. This was, I was so much less nervous when I was practicing in front of my cat. <laughs> so, um, I think that there are a lot of things that people dream about doing when they they grow up. Um, you know, maybe some of you wanted to be astronauts or doctors or artists. Um, but I doubt that very few of us when we were growing up were like, when I'm big, I want to wax balls. <laughs> However, as you may have guessed, that's exactly what I'm going to tell you about today. So, I think that uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the proverb um, of the rock and the river. So, if you're very, you know, fastidious, you're the rock and you have this very solid position and you are unmoving and unyielding. And if you're the river, sometimes you need to be more malleable. That maybe you move around things and you change but you're kind of always moving towards this inevitable future. And I really had been very staunchly against ever waxing genitalia. Um, <laughs> growing up in a salon environment, it actually was something that I was aware of sooner than probably the majority of people are, but it was definitely like, a, oh, I'm not doing that. Um, but then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I wind up in beauty school. And during aesthetics, there was, you know, a portion of this where we started talking about waxing. And, you know, there's waxing women, and then there's also waxing men. Um, so we, you know, had learned, we'd been watching a lot of, like, videos. Everything had been very much in theory, not in practice, of course. And uh, one of, they brought, so... The person that was instructing was a very prominent waxer who was from Las Vegas. Uh, really beautiful woman. She looked like Dita Von Teese, really gorgeous. Uh, unfortunately, she had a really heavy lisp. So, at the point, <laughs> I'm loving watching everybody's faces. So, uh, you know, the point that we're getting ready to learn about this, this, this woman comes up in this like very, you know, very soothing, very professional voice, and she's like, today, we're going to, to learn how to wax the scrotum. <laughs> and obviously my, ans my response to this was, what the hell's a scrotum? <laughs> <laughs> 
So as we're watching this video, the or you know the model's name is his name's Corn, like C O R N. I don't know who named their kid that. I don't know if that was like his adult entertainment name. Like maybe it was like a Corn on the co- I don't really know. Um, but as we're watching this this video, um, I started learning fascinating things about the the male genitalia that I had previously not been aware about. Um, They're a lot more malleable than one would actually assume. Um, You want to make sure that all of the, like, the skin is stretched out very, very tight so that you're not lifting skin because, oh my god, how bad would that possibly be, right? So... You kind of, the men, they end up doing these like crazy things with them where it's like them making these totally like terrifying balloon animals sort of. (laughs) So maybe like one's kind of like the elephant where you're like stretching out ears and there's kind of the the trunk and then like, would you like little girl, like a poodle? Like what can I do for you here? Um, But I think what was most fascinating was the way that they were able to manipulate the testicles. I mean, well, not the testicles themselves, because I think that would be painful, but like the, you know, the scrotum. Um, So, you know, as they're moving the scrotum around, it's like, it's almost like silly putty. Like, it was fascinating to me. I would never, like, presume to, like, go up to somebody and pull on that much skin. But there's really a lot to deal with there. I mean, there's kind of like this whole sack and then these two like sort of like soft boiled eggs that are hanging out in there. And as like they're stretching and they're kind of like bat winging it, it's like silly putty or chewed bubble. I'm like worst kids toy ever. Nobody wants scrotum silly putty. <laughs> um, but they manipulate it all around and um, they get everything, you know, waxed off of it. And, and then at that point, she decided to wax this happy trail. And this is the part where the story starts to become kind of terrifying is because like he's been moving his business all over the place like some kind of joystick on like an old Atari video game like left right up down left right and like um and he's been completely fine but the point that she starts to wax his belly button like that's when he gets turned on (laughs) that's when he's like oh yeah this is doing it for me and that's when gets hard as a rock (laughs) which is uncomfortable when you're watching it with like a room full of other people who have also never seen penises turned into balloon animals um so then you get ready to do the backside. so she she flips him over so he's on all fours and poor corn i don't really know i don't really know what was happening with him or as i suspect because he was in the adult entertainment industry like what may have happened to him previously in the past, but his his testicles, they just, they dropped slowly. Like two golf balls and like a really long tube sock. And they kind of dropped all the way down to his knees. So there's this room of like 20-something-year-old beauty school students, and I didn't mean for it to be like loud, but this really soft voice just came out of me, and I just went, What's wrong with his balls? <laughs> so, understandably, after all of this, like, none of us, we're like, oh, man, we're steadfast. We are rocks. This is not happening. And so our teacher's like, she's trying to get us into it. And she's like, you know, this is something that you should add to your repertoire. <laughs> and, you know, when you're hard up and you're not fully booked, you're going to want that $200 for this full waxing service. And I'm like... 
we're not from Vegas. The going rate around here is like 50 bucks. She just completely ignores me, and she starts talking about when she was doing a, a manzillion or a brozillion or solving the Bermuda Triangle or, you know, smoothing out the chin rest, whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, so she, you know, she tells about the part where she gets ready to flip this guy over on all fours. And generally what we do is we, we dust everything with, like, this really fine powder. And what that does is it stops the wax from adhering to the skin so that you're just lifting off the hair. Um, so she gets this guy all dusted, and it's at that point that he accidentally flatulates in her face. <laughs> and all of the waxing powder is just like, And she gets completely coated, and I kind of like very loudly, like half sit up in the back of my seat, and I'm like, that, that right there, I don't care if it's 50 bucks or 200, nothing is worth getting crop dusted like a motherfucking powdered donut. <laughs> Not happening. Fortunately, like, Nobody really ends up coming in and booking the service afterwards because, like, would you go to a beauty school to get your genitals waxed? Probably not a good idea, right? Um, so I get lulled in this false sense of security that, like, nobody's going to be stupid enough to come in and get this done. <laughs> and we all start doing a lot of, like, we get senioritis, we're getting close to graduating, and if you go into the aesthetics room, you can generally sort of fuck off all day. And, you know, we're all in our little black dresses and our high heels, like, trying to look really professional, and we all talk in soothing voices, and we give our clients facials and other spa services, like backshals, it's a back facial. Um, and then afterwards, we say soothing things like, your service has come to a completion. When you're ready, go ahead and get dressed again. I'll be waiting for you in the lobby with a glass of water. And then as we step out into the lobby and we close the curtain behind us, there was always spa music that we started doing like interpretive dancing to. So, and the interpretive dance, like the, the music was always really fantastic because it was always kind of like this, like Enya meets jungle noises, kind of like Lion Kingy. Like, just, you know, have your spa service and listen to the sounds of soothing jungle monkey. Like, ah, ah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'd like close the curtain and all of my other like co-stylists would be out waiting there for me. And we'd like, I'd jump out from behind the curtain and we'd be like, guys, Kenya. You have a huge chihuahua, huge chihuahua. Um, <laughs> so one day after being lulled in this false sense of security and a whole lot of fucking off, uh, I get a call, of course, as fate would have it, up to the front desk. And some motherfuckers decided to book himself a full ball wax. <laughs> and I don't want to do it. I'm still fastidious. I'm still in my rock place. And so... I ran up there and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I was like, plus I actually know that guy. He sent my friend a dick pic and I've already seen all of his business and I'm not touching it. <laughs> the problem with this is that when you're in beauty school, if you refuse a service, they cancel out all of your hours for the day and all of the service that you've done. You don't get credit for them. And when you're nearing the end, man, you want out of there. Beauty school is kind of like Orange is the New Black. Like, if you got thrown back into junior high school with all the drama, and, but if you'd gone to junior high school in a prison, uh, which I did not, so it was terrifying. 
Uh, one girl like beat up somebody else for $75 in a pack of cools, which is pretty gangster, but also terrifying. Um, so I'm like, I do not want to lose any hours. I do not want to lose these services that I did today. Um, so I have to decide, am I going to be the rock or am I going to be the river? And I decide that it's time to be the river. So I run to the back room and yelled at all the other girls in the spawn. I'm like, oh my God, you guys, I got the service booked. Like, what the hell am I going to do? And this one girl, Rachel G, because we already had like a Rachel E and a Rachel Z, so that wasn't confusing at all. Um, she is crazy excited about all of this, like way more excited than she honestly should be. And I'm like, there's something wrong with you that I previously was not aware of. Um, she wants to watch. And I'm like... <laughs> There is no possible way I'm going to be able to professionally explain to this guy why you're standing in the room while I'm waxing his asshole. And, but she's like, she's into it. So they call me up front. The guy gets there, and I'm like, I got this. I got this. I'm a professional. I'm going to cruise through it. It's going to be okay. So I get up there. I take him to the back. I have him disrobe. Um, I, I honestly, I seal through everything. Man, you guys, I am cruising. I am doing such a good job. It's like silly putty, chewed bubble gum, like penis poodle all over the place. Like we sail through the front. Everything's going great. I flip him over onto all fours and, uh, you know, start powdering him and keeping a safe distance. Um, and then all of a sudden, I see Rachel's little black high heels. Click, 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 click. Like past the curtain. And then like, Click, 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 click. Pass the curtain again. I'm like, what is she doing? And then click, 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 and she stops right in front of the curtain. And then I see her face, like the outline of her face, press into the fabric. <laughs> and she's like pressing her face into it, and you can see the whole outline of her body. And I realize like she's trying to look through the weave in the fabric <laughs> so that she can see what's happening. And I am mortified, and so I'm, like, ripping this wax strip off, and he takes, like, a deep breath in, but I'm not really sure if, like, he was terrified because of what was happening, because he's facing the curtain, or if because I just had ripped a wax strip off of his butthole. Um, anyways, we finish up the service, we're done with it, great. Like, nothing else happens after this fact, really, with me waxing, honestly, because that really was the point where I was going back to my rock space. Um, you know, there was like some 40-year-old virgin moments where I tried waxing my brother-in-law's chest, and I love waxing men's nostrils. The, like, the terrified look they get right before I pull it out is amazing. Um, but otherwise, I hadn't really done it. So uh, last August, I wound up talking with Jessica about this at a barbecue. And she was like, this is definitely a late-night story. <laughs> I was like, no shit. <laughs> so uh, as we got, as we started talking about it, I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about this with any kind of sense of authority, maybe I should go actually have the service done myself so that I know what it's about. Um, thanks to genetics, I don't usually have to have a whole lot done. It's not like, you know, I had sex with a werewolf and there's like business happening down to my knees. Um, and so I just was going to go in for like a deep bikini, what's called a deep bikini. Um, except they're all about upselling, so they end up talking me into kind of like the full business. And I'm like, what in Rome? All right, let's do this. So um, it's kind of, as you might imagine, you know, like it is a lot of like you being nervous. And then afterwards, like it's a good thing that she's like far enough away from you that you can't like actually reach when you're swinging to punch at her afterwards. Um, so I had taken 
uh, some Benadryl, actually. And the reason why is that you might not know that when people get waxed, sometimes they have a histamine response. So your body's trying to defend itself, and sometimes there's swelling. I found this out in beauty school when I let people practice on my arms. My arms, like, got super fat where I looked like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And so I'd taken all this Benadryl, but the problem with this is is that I don't respond to Benadryl the way that other people respond to Benadryl. I'm like in the 5% of the population where it kind of like super meths me out. Not that I take meth, I don't. But, um, but it makes me all kind of like, oh, I'm gonna clean your whole house with a toothbrush and then maybe burst into tears for no reason. Um, so then also, I took a Tramadol to kind of mellow me out just a little bit, um, you know, for the pain. And so, at that point, she's done waxing the front. She flips me over, and she's like, let's do the backside. And I'm like, no, no, no. Nobody's, nobody's going to be back there. It's fine. <laughs> and she's like, you know, you're in for a penny and for a pound. Just go ahead and do it. But at this point, like, I'm crazy nervous. So I'm just laughing maniacally, like, kind of crying, like, <laughs> and she's waxing me, and she's like, oh my god she's like I really hope you're doing this for somebody special and I'm like don't judge me on my love life lady <laughs> so she ends up taking me out into the lobby she spends uh, gets me this very uh, expensive like post spray for afterwards and uh, I go home and I take it home well actually first I run to Albertson's and I immediately go to the fr- frozen fruit section I grab a bag of frozen peas and just jam them down the front of my pants and then I go home for this like four hour like no pants and champagne party that's kind of happening. Um, so eventually I decide to try out the spray. So I take the spray and I'm kind of standing there in front of my mirror and I'm like, I'm going to give it a shot. Just kind of spray it. It feels okay. It's pretty cool. Spray a little bit more. What I didn't do is look at the uh, ingredients first. I just bought really expensive rubbing alcohol. So then the burning comes. <laughs> It's just a lot of burning. And it's like the first time in my life that I ever really truly felt as a redhead like I was a fire crotch because I was just running around pantsless, fanning myself, being like, oh my God, it's hot, it's hot. Um, and then the grow out's like terrible because it doesn't grow out soft. It grows out spiky and kind of turns your vagina into this tiny iron maiden so that anytime you move, you're kind of like, oh. And everybody's like, what's wrong with you? And you're like, nothing, I'm good, I got this. Um... So I guess to sum everything up, my point is that uh, if you decide to be the river and you decide to yield, you might wind up with some really fascinating experiences and some really good stories to tell. But if you're feeling like maybe sticking closer to being the rock and you really don't want to like prescribe to patriarchal standards of beauty where you try to make yourself look like an eight-year-old boy, well, except I don't really ever look like a boy of any age down there, but you know what I mean. My point is that maybe stay being the rock. Let all the change happen around you until everything sort of wears you down into a smooth pebble in its own right. Our second featured storyteller for the evening is Mike Sharp. I almost feel bad I don't have any balls or dildos in my story. I really, I really dropped the ball. So I'm the eighth of eight children. And that sounds like a lot, because you're normal people. Um, but my parents apparently weren't. Um, of course, when you're the eighth of eight children, you're not going to be the one criticizing how many kids your parents had, because it's kind of 
a really key point to getting you born. Um, but it seemed like an awful lot, especially with uh, you know the wage of a of a police officer. And and when you are the eighth of eight children, there are a few things you kind of get used to uh, when you're pretty young. The first of those is on the playground when kids get to know you a little bit. They start asking questions, and they're like, "Man, seven brothers and sisters. What are you Mormon?" And it was always so funny to me because I I reacted very negatively to that question, and I said. You know, how dare you? Like, one, you don't know anything about me. Uh, two, you're making a lot of assumptions. Uh, and three, you're 100% accurate. So <laughs> that's probably what made me the angriest about that whole situation. And the second thing that uh, when you're the eighth of eight kids, um, your mom's been pregnant for like 20 straight years. So like, <laughs> by the time you come around, like, she's kind of given up. And, and not like in a bad parent way, but like some of the rules that existed uh, for your older parent or your older siblings don't really exist for you, um, which gave me the ability to kind of become who I am today, where I, I became kind of a, a talkative little shit, and I'm happy that that happened. Um, and, and it enabled me to have this mom who doted on me, who uh, gave a lot of her attention to me, and I didn't necessarily have some of the ramifications for being that talkative little shit. Um, I made her laugh a lot, and that was kind of our relationship, where we joked around, we had fun, um, and I carried with me a lot of pressure. Uh, it's something a lot of people don't think about. When you think about the eighth kid, they, you think the baby, you think you're getting away with everything, but there's a certain amount of pressure with being the last kid in a nest that big. I mean, this is, this is a big nest. When my parents were empty nesters, they had pretty much been running a bed and breakfast for like 35 years. So like... I'm the last one that's leaving, and nobody else gets to follow after me. I have to make it so that they feel like they did a good job parenting. And so I took it upon myself to be the Mormonist Mormon that's ever been Mormon. I wanted Joseph Smith to, like, wish he were me. Like, I <laughs> dedicated my life to making my mom proud. And, and I thought that was, you know, going on a mission and uh, getting married in the temple and having a shit ton of my own little Mormon babies. And um, I had those plans. And so I used this ability to talk to um, start talking to friends about their churches. And, and I became kind of the conduit to the LDS church for all my friends. And at a very young age, they would come to me and they would ask me questions. And I wanted them to. Um, and they'd come to me and they'd say, hey, my, you know, my minister said that Mormons rape goats in church. Is that, is that accurate? And I'd be like, well, let me, you know, evaluate things. And I'd go home and I'd read the Book of Mormon and I'd read the Bible and I'd call my bishop and I'd show up at school the next day and I'd say, no, no, I don't think so. That's not something. And it, and it gave me this false sense of confidence because I was able to research my church so much that I knew everything you could know about it, it seemed. Um, and I started thinking I just knew everything. Um, which threw me into high school when I think every kid kind of thinks they know everything. And I had the opportunity to pick uh, going to a, like a regular government class or taking uh, political philosophy. And of course, I'm this you know, little asshole who thinks he knows everything. So I'm like, sure, man, give me philosophy. I was convinced I was going to prove Socrates wrong about something because I know everything. I was born into all the knowledge you can have. And so I, uh, I start this class and I tell you what, I, uh, it was like my back was up against a rock and I was trying to fight my way out every single class. 
no matter what we were studying, I was trying to debate it, trying to prove the Mormon church was true because I really, really, really wanted the Mormon church to be true. And one day my teacher pulled me aside. It was like two weeks into class. And he said, Mike, you are doing a really, really bad job. You should stop doing that. And I was like, how is that possible? I'm right. I'm talking the most. I don't see how I could possibly be failing this class. And he said, you're talking a whole lot. You're right about that. Um, but what you're not doing is actually learning the material. And you sound like a fucking idiot. So uh, I had to kind of reevaluate myself. And he said, what you need to do is cut your umbilical cord. And I was like, did that a long time ago? And he's like, no, no. Like, you're holding on to this belief system. And it's keeping you from actually understanding anything you're learning. Um, and you can still believe everything you want to believe, just listen first and then debate it. And I was like, all right, I can do that. I mean, obviously my church is true. Like, it's not like if I think for myself for a minute, I'm not going to believe it anymore. So, um, so I went home that night and I'll never forget the book we were reading was The Republic by Plato. Um, and a lot of people have read The Republic. Uh, my, my part that I read that night was The Allegory of the Cave, um, which obviously some people recognize. If you haven't read The Allegory of the Cave, read it, or like watch The Matrix or something, because it's, <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing. There's a lot less kung fu. But I, uh, I read it, and, and pretty much what The Allegory of the Cave says in my situation, the way I understood it was, you know, everybody's kind of born into this cave. Everybody's born under this rock where... Everything you learn all growing up is just shadows on the wall and uh, things that are drawn for you. Sure, you see a tree, but somebody else drew that tree. You're not actually seeing it. You don't know anything. And I thought for the first time in my life, like, shit, I might be wrong. And that sounds crazy to be 17 years old. And for the first time, you think you might be wrong about something. But that's where I was. And it was earth shattering. And so I started reading more philosophy and started coming to more conclusions and started learning everything I possibly could. And with that, I started trying to fit this, you know, square peg into a round hole of the LDS church, trying to say, oh, well, I don't hate gay people, so how do I fit this in? And, and trying to fit new beliefs into a belief system that I had had my whole life. And I reached a point where I started realizing this hole is getting smaller and smaller. Like, what am I going to do? And I figured out that I was going to have to leave. And it took about three years after figuring that out to really totally understand it. And it's hard to describe because in the Mormon church, it's all about family. Um, you're sealed to your family for eternity. It's a very big deal. And uh, when you're deciding to leave that, you're saying, like, I don't want to spend eternity with you. At least that's their perspective. And I thought I was going to go to hell. I was terrified the church was true. I didn't believe it. I was scared it was. So I decided the first person I needed to talk to about this was my mom. So I sat down with her and I said, Mom, like, I, I think I'm going to leave the church. And she said, you know, why? Do you want to drink? And I said, oh, I mean, I'm going to, but no. I, <laughs> that's not why. And she said, uh, and she said, so what is it? And I said, I don't, I don't believe it. And she said, well, I don't believe you. And I was like, okay cool but I really don't believe the church and I'm going to be leaving and she said no you're not and I said yeah 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 I am and she broke into tears and she cried and she cried and then I cried and we sat 
holding each other, realizing it was kind of the end of this era where I was working to impress her on this level. And it kind of tore us apart a little bit. Now, I mean, I was still a mama's boy. I still came and visited her. I just maybe visited her less. Um, we laughed a whole lot less. My family was really supportive, very surprisingly. Um, they were there for me. Uh, and I say surprisingly because a lot of my friends who left the church, it wasn't that way for them. My siblings were all there for me. Um, but I was the one that was kind of uncomfortable. When you uh, see your nieces and nephews sing happy birthday to Jesus on Christmas, and you don't believe... It feels really weird for the first time. And so I started kind of withdrawing a little bit. And that flashed forward to my mom getting very sick in, in 2011. And at the time, I was jobless. So I was able to go spend every night at the hospital with her, which was a huge uh, opportunity for me to just sit by her bedside and learn about her and talk to her and talk about our dreams. At the time I was dating my now wife and I was telling her about how awesome she was and we laughed together and we watched these great shows like the one where Osama bin Laden died. That happened at that time and the royal wedding happened and there was an apprentice on. There was a lot of stuff that was going on and we'd, we'd sit there and my mom at the time was kind of like you see on TV shows where a car crashes into like somebody and they pin him up against a tree and it, once you move the car, they die. But as long as the car's there, they're like all held together. And that's kind of how my mom was. She was in a situation where they were kind of keeping her alive and she was miserable. But the second they actually did the surgery to fix the problem, she was going to die. And we all, we all knew that toward the end. And so when she finally made the decision to, to go under, uh, she went into a coma. She was in a coma for about a week. And it got to the point where she was totally unresponsive. Uh, her eyes were a deep yellow because her liver was failing. Her eyes were rolled back to the back of her head. There was no communication at that point. Luckily, we had all said her, our goodbyes. And her last words to me were to be strong. And I stood there on the day she died, and I was standing in the back of the, the room uh, where she was slowly passing away, and my giant family's all packed in there, and we're all talking, and my dad's talking about himself to her and, you know, doing all these things that... Uh, that families do. And I decided, you know, my mom said to be strong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. So I stepped forward and I grabbed her hand and I held onto her hand. And just a few moments later, she looked at my dad, which is crazy considering her eyes are rolled in the back of her head. And I still haven't got an understanding for why this happened. But then she, her head turned and she looked directly in my eyes until she didn't. And she died. And she was looking past me. And I was holding onto her hand, and I knew I had just connected with her. I knew she looked at me. Her eyes were white. Her eyes were not yellow like they had been before. In that last moment, she was there, and I don't understand it. But I stood there, and I held her hand. And for the first time since I left the church, I really, really wished the church was true. Because I wanted to think there was this place I was going to go, and we were going to spend time together again, and I was going to see her. And I thought, that's all over. Like, what am I going to do? I don't understand anything. I'm, gonna, I'm not the same person anymore. So I went home, and I kind of sat by myself, and I went out on the back porch, and I called my best friend to tell him what had happened because that's what you do. And I called him, and, and uh, I just kind of sounded hollow, and I felt like I wasn't really there. And then this weird joke came out where I said, you know, my... Uh, my wife, my, Hannah and I decided we're going to name our first daughter after her. And he was like, oh, that's really sweet. And I said, yeah, Mommy Sharp. And we both just laughed because it was a terrible joke, but it was like the worst possible time for it. Like, who makes a joke in that situation? 
and at that moment, I realized something. I realized that all this pressure I put on myself to be married in the temple, to go on this mission, to be the perfect little Mormon boy, that wasn't why my mom loved me in the first place. I was her baby no matter what. And she loved that I made her laugh. And she loved my personality. And she loved who we were together. And that's what she really wanted. When she said be strong, she knew I didn't have that safety net. She knew that I didn't have the, the comforting knowledge that I was going to spend eternity with her on the other side. And so she just wanted to make sure I was taken care of. And so what I realized was I may not have the knowledge or the belief that I'm going to spend eternity with her. And I may not have her ever again. I may not ever see her. But I still get to make those stupid jokes. And I get to see her every single day in stupid little things that I do. And every piece of who I am was molded by her. And so in a weird little way, I do get to spend the rest of my life with her. And that's worth crawling out of a rock for. Thanks. Our next featured storyteller will be Amber Saylor. Amber? Do you like that when I came up, I gave myself my own cheerleader clap? You know. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, but one thing that we haven't covered is virginity. And so I thought that we probably, most of us have this in common. But if there are any virgins out there, you're over the age of 21, it's time to pop the cherry. But I'll tell you about my cherry. Um, before we get to that part, we're going to talk about how virginity was like this huge part of Christian life for me, because I was a good girl. Like, I was a good Christian girl that went to church every single Sunday. And when people, like, fell down in the aisles and they were speaking in tongues, that was normal to me. That wasn't weird or off. So when I went to seminars and got charms and bracelets and rings to, like, commit my purity to God, it was a totally normal thing, and it was heartfelt. Like, I believed in it. I mean, they sold me this idea that God is not only your father, but he's your husband until you get married. <laughs> and I kind of blame the church for, like, my daddy complex. Because that's weird, right? I mean, I think that's weird. But supposedly God... <laughs> has this man chosen for me and he's a good Christian man and he is keeping his virginity and we're going to be virgins together and our wedding night is going to be blissful <laughs> and we'll live happily ever after except not so I did have a boyfriend that was a good Christian guy and that lasted for about eight months and I thought, well, maybe that's just not the, the guy that God wanted for me. So I moved on. And the next guy that I moved on to, basically like every parent's worst nightmare. <laughs> if I'm going to lose my virginity to anybody, surely it can't be the Christian guy. It's got to be the guy with the shaved head, sells drugs, sings in a metal band. 
and appropriately has libido tattooed on the inside of his arm, because that's sexy. And I have no idea till this day how I convinced my mother that I was going to church with him, but I did. And it was, <laughs> it was a Sunday morning, and we went to church, and my, my friend's band was actually playing. And so we watched my friend's band, and then the pastor came up, and we left. And we went to his house. And he's like, want some alcohol? And I'm like, sure, I want some alcohol. You smoke weed? Fuck yeah, I smoke weed. Except I didn't. I had smoked weed one time, so I drank a little alcohol, smoked a little weed, and it just so happens that we're in his bedroom, strange, and there's handcuffs by his bed, and I'm like, that looks interesting. Go ahead, cuff me. And there went the virginity, like that. So the purity was not just lost, but it had a little S&M in it, too. <laughs> and it's evil. That's evil, right? So, like, he takes me back home, and I walk in the door, and my mom looks at me like, her, there are lasers that shoot out of my mom's eyes. I don't know if any of your moms are like that, but, like, true lasers. Where were you? What were you? And I was like, nothing, deny, 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 deny. But my hair was like out to here. <laughs> my eyes were like the reddest they could have ever been. And she's like, there's something wrong with you. And I think that she thought that I was possessed. <laughs> and I mean, I kind of felt that way, I think. But, you know, maybe her idea possessed and my idea possessed is different. So, of course, you know, I couldn't see him. I was told that I couldn't see him, but I found ways to see him. And a few weeks after seeing him, he introduced me to his girlfriend. Oh, but it's not that sad because I really liked her. <laughs> and he had already warned me that he had a girlfriend that was, like, open to ideas. And I had already been cuffed, so obviously I was open to ideas. <laughs> and I lost my virginity again, not because I was a born-again virgin, but because I had girl sex. And it was the best sex. Like, there was no drugs or alcohol or cuffs, which is, like, good. Like, you know, it's good. But she was soft and sweet and perfect, and she smelled like raspberries, and I fell in love with her. And for several years, the three of us were like, we were an item. I thought it was only ever the three of us. That's a different story. <laughs> um, but, you know, for like the first five minutes of that relationship, it worked really well. Like, it worked really well in bed. But it's very complex. And you're dealing with not like one person's emotions but two person's emotions so you, then you like drop some weed and alcohol and drugs on that it's like very dysfunctional strangely enough <laughs> so fast forward a little bit a few years I'm 19 and we're all broken up like he's not with her I'm not with him like 
all our separate ways, at least for the time being. And I'm hanging out with my best friend on a regular basis, and pretty much like what we did was drive around and find parks and basically like empty streets to just like hotbox her S10. It was it was like that was just the thing to do. And we had talked about like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should have some like more money. We should get a job. Blah blah blah. Eh, fuck it. We'll just get stoned. So one day we're stoned and we decide to head to the mall. And we're not like typically mall people, but we were probably out of weed, honestly. So we get to the mall and we go to Virgin Records. And it's not an indie shop. Like, it's not like that cool, but it's cool in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Like, it's cool. It's a cool place to be. And at Virgin Records, they have listening stations. So back in like the 90s, olden days, you could go to like one of 15 listening stations and listen to a whole CD and you didn't have to pay for it. You could just stand there and listen. And so we went to go listen to music. And I walked in, and then I recall the last time I was here, I was here with him, my ex-boyfriend. And then I thought like about all the inappropriate ways that we were in public. And there was a part of me that was like kind of angry that I wasn't with him, but then there was like this huge part of me that was like super turned on at the same time. Like, what do I do with this feeling? I think I'll head to the bathroom. (laughs) And thank God it was a single stall, because for three minutes, at least, I fucked myself. Like, you don't even know. Like, I remember seeing stars. And it's, I mean, you remember, like, really good people in your life, but, like, I was my best person that day. It... (laughs) It was amazing. And then, the, like, the real twinkly stars, you know? You know what I'm talking about, ladies. So I walk out of there, and I'm glowing, like I'm a little bit sweaty, and I'm like, this would be an awesome place to work. I think I should work here. And with my glow still on, I walked straight up to the counter and I was like, do you have an application? And I filled it out and then I talked to like the super hot manager and like I knew I still had all those pheromones going and I gave it to him and I'm like, hey, so when can I start? And he's like, come back in like three days and then boom, I had a job at Virgin Records just like that. I was about two weeks into it and I was like just discovering how much I hated retail. (laughs) Like, I thought it would be really cool because you get the cool t-shirt and, like, there's music and listening stations. But really, people have, like, such horrible taste in music and they would ask me questions. I'm like, I don't fucking know what you want. And I'm just dusting a shelf now, so whatever. So, yeah, I'm, like, dusting a shelf. And in walks in, like, not just my ex-boyfriend, but he's holding my ex-girlfriend's hand. And it crushed me because we were three. 
And that's not normal to most people. Like, usually it's just two people, but we were three. And so it felt like when they walked in, like they were cheating on me. And that wasn't okay. And he, he, he had this smug look on his face, and she had this, I'm so sorry, am, look on her face. They wanted to chat it up and hang out on my break, and I was like, mm, yeah, I don't have any more breaks. And he was like, well, page me. Because <laughs> we had pagers and not cell phones. And in pager language, and if you grew up in the 90s and you know this, there's a language. You could like write whole sentences and just numbers. I miss you. I love you. I need you. Let's go to bed and go to hell. <laughs> and I got like four out of the five and not go to hell. My beeper was like blowing up. He wanted me to meet up with them. And... I thought I could go have like a really amazing threesome, right? With people that I love. So it's the end of my shift. I walk out to the payphone. Yeah, it was still a quarter. I'm that old. I remember when it went to 35 cents, okay? Just rip off. <laughs> and instead of like doing like the pager language. I'm like, hey, leaving a voicemail, it's me. I just got off work. Pick me up. I'll be out front smoking cigarettes. And I went out front, and I was out there for about 20 minutes. And my best friend drove up in her Chevy S10 with her weed ready for us to smoke. And it made me very happy to know that maybe just once, like once in like relationships that age, I made the right decision by calling her and not calling him to pick me up. But I couldn't go back to Virgin Records after that. Like it just had like too much. Like I had already like done my own thing there and then they were there and like, that was too much. And so, like, instead of being responsible, because I was 19, I just um, never went back. <laughs> but I was, I did call, and I was like, listen, I need my check. Like, seriously? I worked there for two weeks. And I deserve an eighth of marijuana. <laughs> But at the end of the day, the whole thing with Virgin Records is that I came and I went and I got the badass t-shirt. So. Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party. Board members Bob Haycock, Judy Atheberger, Amy Moran, Hannah Schaefer, Terry Roudenbush, Volunteer Coordinator Ginny Estes, and yours truly, Jessica Holmes. Late Night Season is brought to you with generous support from the iconic Overnight Teen Shop. Rock was made possible with the support of Move Yoga and Dance. We're so zen, you guys. 
along with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. Rock featured live music from legit rock star Ned Evett, who also wrote our late-night theme song. Big props to Stephen Baldessari for podcast production and show photography by Paul Budge. Support this story program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter at Story Story Night.